Amen, amen. Well, thank you so much, Cody, and the worship team for leading us in worship this week. And y'all, it is so great to see all of y'all today on this wonderful Father's Day. I don't feel like we have the same amount of enthusiasm for Father's Day as we do Mother's Day, but we are so glad to have all of y'all here on Father's Day. Uh, Before I even begin, I'd like to first start by saying thank you so much to uh, the church. Uh, If you don't know, this last week I was at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I'm able to go to that because the church chooses to send me uh, as a messenger of the church to go and be a part of that. I would tell you, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention during that time, we got to talk about a lot of things, and the vast majority of it, it went really, really well. If you have questions, you have thoughts, I would encourage you, I'd love to talk to you about it if you do, and I would just tell you, be careful what you read. Be careful what you read in regards to where our convention is going. We're in a great place, and we're moving in the right direction. And so, y'all, once again, I'm excited to have y'all here today. If you would, open up to Proverbs chapter 1 with me. Proverbs chapter 1. If you're here two weeks ago, we began a series titled Wisdom. Wisdom, and over the course of the summer, we're going to be walking through the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. And if you remember, I said the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are the prologue to wisdom literature in the Old Testament. In other words, to understand Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are the key to understand all of it. This is Wisdom 101. And we began looking at verses 1 through 7, and this week we're going to do verses 8 through 33. And so as some of you are still turning there, I remember right after I graduated high school, I had a guy at my home church, Sweetwater Baptist Church in the village of Quitman, Louisiana, uh, right before I moved off for college. I remember he came up to me after a service one day, and for some reason this is just marked in my mind. I still remember it. He said, Merrick, I've got one piece of advice for you as you go off to college. I said, okay, what is that? He said, life is made of choices. Life is made of choices. And the conglomeration of those choices will lead you to where you eventually are going to be. Now, I knew him well enough to know what he was saying because he'd been a mentor in many ways. He said, America, if you walk with Christ and walk in God's word, this is where you're going to find yourself. If you choose not to and to walk this way, this is where you're going to end up. And you're going to end up in places you never thought you would be. Life is made of choices. I assume most people would agree with that. The question is, is how do you make good choices? How do you make the right choice? What affects the choice you make, if you will? Well, I would tell you what affects the choices that we make most predominantly is the voices that we listen to. So what you may realize, maybe you don't, is we constantly are being told messages. The world has a message for us. Your music has a message for you. The TV shows you watch, they have a message For you, your friends, your circles, they have a message for you. You have good influences, good voices in your life, bad influences in your life, and then you have your own voice in your own life, which friends oftentimes cannot be trusted, right? Excuse the poor and corny phrase of saying it, but basically to make the right choice, you have to listen to the right voice. Say that again. To make the right choice, you have to listen to the right voice. And so the question is, is what are you listening to? Who are you listening to? What I'm proposing this morning, the point of the sermon is this. There are voices all around us, and the question is, is do you and I listen to the wisdom and follow the wisdom of God, or do we listen to and follow the wisdom of the world? You cannot do both. And there is a massive difference. Proverbs actually says the difference is that between life and death, salvation and damnation. So the question is, is who are you listening to? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for a chance to pause, to open your word, and to listen. Father, help us do that this morning. Father, there's some in this room who you've been calling for a while. There's some in this room you're trying to get their attention, and I pray, God, Help us rid our minds of all distractions and listen to what you have to say to us. Father, we know anytime your word is open, it is you who is speaking. So my prayer is put your words in my mouth, keep my words out of yours, and bless your people this morning. We ask all this, Father, in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is To Whom Are You Listening? To Whom Are You Listening? If you 
We're here two weeks ago. We began this series by looking at Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. I highly doubt you remember what we talked about because I had to go back and look at my own outline to remember exactly what I talked about. So I'll give you a quick refresher. Proverbs is unlike any other book in that it's a wisdom book that's, that's written by a man who God gave specific wisdom to. Now, I'm not trying to say it's different and more special than the other books of the Bible. I'm saying as Solomon is writing this, he's writing the wisdom that God has given to him on the pages for us. And what's so special about it is he literally says in the beginning, he says, I've written this to teach wisdom, to discipline you, to correct you. I've written this to provide insight on how you are to live. In other words, do you want to know how to live? He says, it's right here. I'm writing this to teach you. If you remember, we talked about who is this for? He says it's for the naive person, the young person, and the wise person. In other words, it's for everybody. If you want to know wisdom, if you want to know how to live, Simon literally is saying, come listen and see. I'm providing it for you right here. And he begins with the way we ended two weeks ago. He says the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of this is the fear of the Lord. It's recognizing there's a God who's created everything and one day you will give an account to him. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the reverential awe of knowing how great and vast This God is, he created everything merely by speaking, and yet that vast God cares so much that he loves you individually. If that doesn't make you go, wow, right? It's this knowledge of God, this fear of him, but it's this reverential awe of him. This is how Solomon begins, and now he wants you to see, if you fear God, you need to listen to him. And I'll show you through this text two main points he's making about this. The first look, verses 8 through 9. He simply says, hear, my son. Isn't it fitting for Father's Day? We have a father speaking to a son. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. I could spend the whole time talking about this, but I want you to know real quickly, notice whose job it is to disciple the children. Listen to your father's instruction. Listen to your mother. Listen to your parents. Parents, it is your responsibility to pour life, the word of God, into your kids. But I want you to see what he says. He says, listen to these. Listen to them. Do not forsake them. They're a graceful garland on your head and a pendant on your neck. Let me explain to you in ways that maybe you and I would understand a little bit more. Whenever someone races in the Olympics and they win, they get a wreath on their head and a gold medal around their neck. This is exactly what Solomon is saying. He's saying, what I'm giving to you, listen to this, and you will run the race well. You will get the prize at the end of life. And look at where he chooses to begin in talking about wisdom and talking about the fear of the Lord. How can you do that? He begins, verse 10, by saying, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If sinners entice you, do not consent. The first point this morning is this. He says, do not listen to folly. Do not listen to foolish people. Do not listen to people who he calls sinners. Now, hear me, whenever he says sinners, he means people who walk in the ways of the world. Do not listen to them. He's even more serious than that. He doesn't just say just don't listen. He says, if they entice you, and that word if can also mean when. In other words, when sinners entice you to do what they do, he says, do not consent. Now, the word entice there means persuade. It means any way of people trying to say, hey, come and do this. Come and do this. This is the way of life. This is the way you should live. This is what you should do. He says, if sinners entice you, they persuade you, do not consent. Do not yield. Stand your ground regardless of what they say. How they say this to you, regardless of how they seek to persuade you, do not go that direction. Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, sin always seems to recruit others to come along with them. And what you find is that's the case in our world today. And he says, son, don't follow route. Then he does something interesting. He gives him somewhat of a parable, a little bit of a story. Look at verse 11 through 14. He says, if, or you could say when, they say, come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. It's interesting. He gives him a simple parable of what you could call a gang who's trying to peer pressure into coming and doing what they're doing. And essentially they're saying, hey, come, 
join us, do this, and you can get rich. Let me translate a little bit more. He's saying, look, regardless of what they may be telling you, regardless of how many may be saying this, regardless of what little wrong it may take, what little compromise it may cost of you, do not do it. Don't do it to get cheap money. Don't do it to be greedy for other things. Don't follow them regardless of what they may say. Do not consent, which leads to verse 15, and probably my favorite point of the whole passage. Verse 15, he says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. You can say point 1A is do not listen to folly. Point 1B is don't follow fools. Right? Do not follow fools. Regardless of what they're doing, regardless of where they're going, do not go where they are. Friends, can you tell even just from this little bit, who you hang out with matters. The voices you allow in your head matter. The people you allow to speak into your life matters. Who you listen to matters. To which Solomon tells him why. Look at verse 16 through 18. He says, For their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. And then notice, he says something odd. He said, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. Obviously, you would never do that, right? A bird would be able to see it. But he said, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. He says these people think that what they're doing is going to gain them something, but instead of gaining themselves something, what they're doing is actually going to cost them everything. Going this route. They don't even realize that they're walking the way of folly, which ultimately leads to verse 19. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. The word life there literally means soul. It takes away their life. It takes away their soul. So the point of the first half of this is, is that he's wanting to tell his son, don't follow sinners, meaning don't follow people who live their own way. When people entice you to live for this world, do not consent. Do not live as the world does. Do not follow in their footsteps. Now, I think most people would say, obviously, right? Obviously, of course, we're not supposed to do that. But I want to show you that, that this isn't quite as, as simple as it may seem. And I want to show you just by using the illustration that he gives here. It's odd that the one thing, the parable he uses to talk about his son first is greed. Is that not kind of odd? The reason it's odd is if I were to poll everyone in the room this morning and say, how many of you struggle with greed? Most likely there wouldn't be anyone who'd say that's the main thing I struggle with. But you see, greed is actually interesting because greed affects every other aspect of our life. Greed plays out in what you eat, in gluttony, in power, in possessions, in status. You could take the list and you could go on and on and on, but we don't typically think of greed as being an issue of us. Now, obviously, all of us know that, you know, whenever you're born into this world, Maybe you have a greedy tendency. Anybody who has kids know that the spirit of any child whenever they were born is give me, give me, give me, give me, right? It's like Finding Nemo, mine, mine, mine for everything. Yesterday, uh, Emily and my parents got to go to Maggie's Jungle Golf, and they played there for a while. Then they went to the pool where my parents were staying. They got to swim there for a while. And they came home, and one of them was crying because he didn't get to watch exactly what he wanted to watch. I'm like, do you realize everything that's been done for you? I mean, it's just natural, Right? I actually heard a story this week of one guy who said that he, he's tried to instill specifically in his children this idea of gratitude. Don't be greedy. Be gracious. He said he even does like different envelope systems and he gives them allowance to teach them how to give their money and prioritize that. And he said, I thought I was doing well until one day I got home and one of my three children, my six-year-old daughter, asked me, why is there a Band-Aid on your arm, Dad? And I told her, well, I had to go to the health department and get a checkup because uh, your daddy's actually getting life insurance. She says, well, what's life insurance? He says, well, if something ever were to happen to your dad, and he said, I tried to be very easy with this, then, you know, I want to make sure you are taken care of. And she goes, what does that mean? She goes, well, it means if I am not here, then you are going to get a million dollars. And she looks back up at him. He says, she's my tender one, and I was really nervous. It probably would break her heart. And then she looks up, and she goes, a million dollars a piece? <laughs> you know, in this six-year-old tender-hearted child, you find greed right like she's not worried about is my dad going to be here is he not she's thinking is this for everybody you all think all of us know whenever we're born we have a greed inside of our hearts we have a greedy spirit inside of us 
But it's odd that few people actually think they struggle here. One pastor I was reading, much more tenured than me, 20 plus years in the ministry, said, in all my years, I've never had a single person come to me for help because they're greedy. Never. In my few short years, seven, eight years of ministry, I've never had someone come to me and say, hey, I'm a greedy person. And yet this is the first instance, this is the first bit of wisdom he's passing on to his son. You see, and I think the issue is whenever we think of greed, we typically think of wealthy people. That's what wealthy people struggle with because they have so much. Friends, the amount of what you have has nothing to do with being a greedy person or not. You can be a generous person who has nice things, but not a greedy person. You can be someone who gives and be wealthy, and you can be someone that has very little that is greedy with everything that you have. Greed is an issue. Let me explain it to you this way, and maybe this will help. A simple definition for me often helps me in understanding the issue. Merriam-Webster puts it this way, and I have it for you on the screen. What is greed? Greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. Think about that again. Greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. In other words, wanting more, having an over-desire to get more, or always be looking for more, that's the definition of greed. Friends, and what you may realize is greed actually is the reason people struggle with sexual sin. They want something that is not theirs, so therefore they take. That's greed. Ephesians 5 actually uses the word greed and covetousness when talking about sexual sin. It's what actually stimulates someone to go and get what is not theirs. It's greed. Greed is what makes people run up the money on the credit card bill because they want more. Greed is what makes us eat and eat and eat and eat, regardless of whether we're full or not. Greed is what makes us maybe even have all of our necessities, yet wish that we had better furniture, yet wish that we had a nicer house, yet wish that we had a nicer car, yet wish that we had this or had that. Greed is always looking at what you don't have rather than looking at what you do. And friends, this problem is pervasive. Solomon says, don't follow those type of people. Y'all, the issue is, is in this instance, he talks about a gang. I don't know anybody in this room who would say, you know what, if a gang came to me and said, hey, let's go kill someone and take money, then I'd say, yes, let's go do it. But the truth is, is sinners and this path does not announce itself whenever it comes to you. Temptation doesn't say, hey, I'm about to tempt you to do this, so be on your lookout. Rather, temptation just happens. Oftentimes, it can look like the form of someone who you see as successful, so you seek to follow their way of life, even though it may be foolish. Sometimes it looks like maybe a celebrity. They say, you know, I want to get there, so I'm going to follow that way, or somebody you look up to, or whatever it might be. The way of folly isn't so clear-cut until you look at someone's life based on the Word of God. Friends, for us, the voice is a lot louder than just a person or a crowd or a gang around us. You see, the culture that we very much so are in right now is a culture that screams, you need more. And hear me again. I didn't say says it. It screams it. Next ad that comes on whenever you're watching TV, say, what is it telling me I need to be happy? And you'll be able to answer it every time. What's it telling me I'm missing out on? Well, you need more of this, more of this, more of this. And I doubt a gang will entice many of us, but what about a consumeristic culture that values money, possessions, pleasure, and the continual pursuit for more? Now, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't think this was all around us. Now, hear me. If you're not doing what Solomon is saying, not consenting, actively battling against it, what do you think you might be doing? You might be listening to sinners, listening to those who go this path, right? I read an article this week. I won't belabor you with all of the details, but it was really interesting. I'd never heard it before, never really thought about it before. But this consumeristic idea used to not be a thing in America. In the 1800s, it just wasn't a thing. People lived on bread and potatoes. For the most part, they seemed to be pretty content because there wasn't an expectation of lavish things. But everything changed in 1890. 1890 was the beginning whenever factories began to be a thing. Let's make more products that can reach further than our area Let's get PR people to advertise. Let's stop making goods for the sake of a need. Let's make goods for the sake of a profit. 
And part of the scandal is how do we make people actually believe that they need what we're trying to sell? Took off in the 1920s, was harbored a little bit because of the Great Depression. But then after World War II, 1950s, it amped up and it has not slowed down one bit. This is actually from the MIT Press writing a brief history of consumer culture. It's a fairly long article. I'd encourage you to go read it. But the subtitle simply says this. Over the course of the 20th century, capitalism preserved its momentum by molding the ordinary average person into a consumer with an unquenchable thirst for more stuff. More pleasure, more stuff, more opportunities, more vacation, more exposure, more. Friends, what is the definition of greed? More. What's going to make me happy? More. It's the lie that if I just had that, then I would be happy. If I could just feel this way, if I just had this relationship, if I just had that type of stuff, if I just got to here in my job, then I would be happy. Friends, I said it earlier, but I'll put it on the screen for you now. Greed is the reason why we often think more of what we want than what we actually have. Hear that again. It's the reason why we often talk about what we want 10 times more often than we say, man, God, thank you for the car you've given me. Thank you for the house you've given me. It's the reason whenever we seek to buy stuff, often we ask, how much can I spend? How much can I afford? Meaning, with what I have, how much can I get? Friends, hear me. There are voices all around, and what Solomon says here, you need to listen to. He says, this is the way to death. And those who are on that road don't know Christ. And I'll prove it to you later on where he says This is the opposite of being thankful. Greed is also the reason we have conflict in our church, in our homes, in our workplace, in our lives. James 4, 1 through 3 says, Why do you think there are conflicts and divisions among you? Is it not because your passions are at war within you? Is it not because you want and you don't have? Friends, let me, let me go even further here. If you have issues with something at the church that isn't biblically based, and you have a problem with it, you need to stop and ask, is it because I don't have what I want? That's called greed. In my house, if I don't get what I want, that's called greed. This is a serious problem because of several reasons. 1 John 2, 15-16 lays it out like this. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires, notice he talks about desires, the desires of the flesh. If I could just feel this way, I'd be happy. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What is John saying? He's saying greed is the vice that will keep many people from going to Jesus. Here, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up treasure for things here. The Christian sees what? That Jesus is my grand treasure. I invest my life for there, not for here. Friends, it's, it's interesting. We, we often talk about the big sins, if you will, in the church. People throw out different things. Adultery. Idolatry, homosexuality, drunkenness, whatever it might be. If you go to 1 Corinthians 6 and you look for a list of those vices, it's odd. One other word's included with that same group, and that group, that word is greed. And it begins by saying, do not be deceived. Those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 19, he says, but such were some of you. But you were washed, you were changed, you were sanctified. You are no longer like that. I would end the discussion on this just by simply saying, is there any character trait that you can think of that is more opposite than Jesus than greed? Jesus could have come here and taken everything he wanted, and yet he gave everything. What's one of the ways the devil tried to tempt Jesus? Took him up on the mountaintop and said, I'll give you all of this if you just bow down to me. And what did Jesus do? He said, no, I'm not going your way. I'm not going to consent. I'm going to go God's way. Jesus didn't come to, to take. He said, I've come to give my life. I've come to give it all of way. 
Instead of seeing what he could get, he gave everything away, even to the point of his own life. And you might say, well, why? Because we could not do it. Jesus came and lived the way that we could not live in order that he might give us something that we do not deserve. Even in that, he gives. Friends, it's not just because of our culture that we think this way. Truthfully, all of us can fall prey to the lie that if I just had blank, if I just looked blank, if I just felt blank, if I just could be blank, then I would be happy, and it's just not true. One of the neatest things I learned in studying this passage is if you look again at verse 11 through 14, the parable of the peer group, right, trying to get him to come and do this thing, I want you to notice that is that not the very thing that happened to Judas Iscariot? I'm talking about verbatim. A group of people saying to him, come, lie, and wait. We'll kill him, and for money, you can trade him for money. Friends, what we see is the opposite of the world is a giver, not a taker. And we must be very quick to listen. Don't fall the crowd's way. Don't walk the way, the path of the sinner's. That's just one thing, greed. You could add all sorts of stuff, pride, pleasure, possession, status, choices, whatever. Ultimately, our life is not about us. It's about him. And Solomon tells his son, son, if you, when you are enticed, when they try to persuade, do not consent. Do not go that direction. Then the question is, is who are we to listen to? He says, do not listen to folly. Do not follow fools. Well, the second point, where he points his son to is, do listen to wisdom. Listen to wisdom. Later on in the Proverbs, he says, do whatever you have to do to get it. Run after her. Chase her. Get wisdom. And it's interesting the way he even brings wisdom on the scene. It's been so far a father speaking to a son. Now we see wisdom itself is going to speak to people. Look at verse 20 and 21. It says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries, cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. This is interesting. He says, wisdom is out there in the marketplace. Wisdom is out there in the business field. He says, at the city gates, that's where business will be conducted. He says, wisdom is out there screaming. I will say it's interesting. Why would he talk about wisdom being a lady? Now, some of the ladies in here go, well, isn't it obvious why wisdom is a lady? But why would he talk about wisdom being a lady? Well, you could go from, there's actual lexical reasons why from the Hebrew language. But I think the main reason why is Solomon is trying to teach his son to desire wisdom. Why not make her a beautiful woman? Why not entice him to want wisdom by saying, This is what she looks like. You get wisdom. Chase after her. One guy I read this week, he said, man, just looking at this, if my biology teacher would have presented biology this way, I would have wanted to learn how to do biology. He's trying to entice his son to go after wisdom. And he says, she's at the noisy streets. You have to ask, why is she crying out? Why is she out there? Why is she at the noisy streets? Because there's so many things clamoring for people's attention. She's screaming, listen to me. Friends, whenever Solomon wrote that, he knows nothing compared to the voices in our lives today. I thought about today coming up and walking on stage and just looking at y'all for 60 seconds, and I was like, people would be so weirded out, people would leave, right? Silence just does something to us, right? We're so used to noise constantly. Listen to God's word. He says, wisdom is yelling at you. Pay attention. And what's her message? What does she have to say? Look at verse 22. She says, how long? How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Because that seems to be somewhat archaic language, let me explain to you what what these words mean. And I'm going to go scoffer, then fool, then I'm going to come back to the simple one. But the scoffer is the one who is arrogant. They're boisterous in their rebellion. They know it all. They don't need any help. That's why she's asking, how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? They're like, I've got the way. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I'm just going to go and I'm going to do it. Then she says, how long will fools hate knowledge? 
A fool is a person who's ignorant and stubborn. They lack sense, but neither do they look for it. This is the person who has little concern with spiritual things. They don't care what the Bible has to say. Yeah, it says that. Yes, yeah, it says that. Whatever. They, they are stubborn. They aren't worried about that. They're going to do life their own way. In the first category, notice she speaks to them a little bit different. She says, how long, O simple ones, will you love just being simple? And friends, I would tell you, I would fear that more people fall into this camp today than they even realize. Let me explain to you what the simple one is, and I'll use some help from some commentaries. The simple person is the naive person. The one who just follows the course of the world. Whenever they're in high school, they live as the high schoolers do. When they're in college, they live as the college people do. When they're young married, they live as the young married people do. Whenever they get to be adults, they live as adults do. They just live which whatever phase they're in with people that they're around. They don't, they, the simple are just okay with living as they are. They are content. They don't really feel strongly either way. Sure, go to church. Sure, be a part of this. Sure, have one foot here. Sure, have one foot there. Ultimately, they just go with the flow of life and conform to whoever is around them. As one person says, wisdom cries out to the scholar and to the fool, but it's different for the simple. She says, how long? In other words, you know truth. How long am I going to have to continually cry out to you? You see, the fool, I mean, the, the simple person has heard the sermons. They might could explain to you how to come to faith in Christ. They know these things. It just has no effect on their life. They just, wherever they're at, that's how they live. They just conform with the group they're in, the stage of life that they're in. Wherever they're at, wisdom says, how long will you ride the fence? How long will you just be there? Will you listen and respond to me? To which she says, this is what I'm calling you to do. Verse 23 says, if you turn at my reproof, behold... I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Friends, I will tell you, there are not many verses as powerful as that right there. What is wisdom saying? Wisdom says, if you turn at my reproof, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Do you hear what this is saying? Wisdom is to be had for the taking. It's yours. All you must do is turn. Turn. Don't go that way anymore. Instead, go that way. You could say 2B or point 2B would be this. Turn to her and listen. Turn to wisdom and listen. I love the way one pastor, Ray Ortland, he says it this way. The word turn is the most important word in the Bible for repentance. It is not a sentimental word. It is a decisive word. The Lord isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for responsive people. And here is the response he's looking for. The person who will turn from living their own way and to live for his. The person who will repent of living life, going down this road, listening to these voices, following the course of the world, and the person who will have the change of mind and turn and say, God, I'm following you. Is it not odd that this message, the message of wisdom, Fast forward to several thousand years, or I guess 1,500 years, and where do you get? You get to John the Baptist bursting on the scene, and what is John the Baptist's message? Repent. Turn. You get to Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. What is Jesus' message? Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn and place your faith in me. Friends, without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Wisdom is saying, here is life right in front of you. Jonathan Akins puts it this way, repentance is the key response to Jesus' message. You must recognize that you are on the wrong path because of the foolish choices that you have made and that you continue to make. Then you must choose to follow Christ. Friends, hear me. If you hear nothing else today, I ask you, hear this. Admitting that you are a sinner is not the same thing as repenting. Acknowledging that you sin is not the same thing as repenting. Feeling bad when you sin is not the same as repenting. God has given us a conscience. No human doesn't feel bad and harden their conscience or their conscience is seared. Repentance is whenever you are broken over your sin and you turn and you go that direction no more. Repentance is whenever you say, I'm no longer walking my way, I have to walk God's way. 
It's a two-way deal. It's a turning away from something and a turning to something else. It's turning away from the ways of the world, turning away from the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, turning away from my way, and it's turning to Jesus. I will go your way. I will live your way. Now hear me. He said it earlier. I'll say it again. This isn't about perfection. It's about direction. It doesn't mean you don't ever struggle, but there's a very big difference. If I'm traveling to Louisiana from here, there's a difference in me taking a wrong turn and having to get back on course versus me turning around and driving to Maine. Friends, Christians don't live in explicit sin. They do not. First John teaches us that. You cannot stay in that and be comfortable in that and live in that and know Jesus. John 14, 21, we've said it numerous times over the John series. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the person who loves me. Friends, obedience is the fruit of one who has repented and turned to Jesus. Do you want to know why? Because repentance has crazy effects. What are the effects? Well, wisdom says, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Hear what Lady Wisdom is saying. If you turn, I'll give you a spirit of wisdom you didn't have before. If you turn, I'll make my words known to you in a way they weren't before. Friends, God's word can be known factually, but it doesn't take root in your heart until you repent and turn. There's only so much you can understand. There's only so much you can get until you seek to follow Jesus. You repent and place your faith in him. Now let's fast forward and look at the full implications of this. Jesus says whenever you repent and believe in me, it's not just the spirit of wisdom, some hypothetical thought. It's the spirit of the living God who dwells within us, right? Romans 8 tells us that, 9 through 11. If you're in Christ, the very spirit that rose him from the dead now dwells inside of you. This spirit will allow you to see. He'll make God's word known to you. He will make you obey God's word in a way that you could not before. Friends, we cannot obey God's word without the Spirit's help. We can't even know we need God without the Spirit's help. This is why whenever we talk about conversion and we say conversion changes people, we say that because that's what the Bible teaches over and over and over and over again. This is not some hypothetical person-to-person type ideology. The Bible says when you repent, notice the word, I will pour my Spirit in you. I will Make my words known to you. Ezekiel speaks in the same thing. He says, I'll take your heart of stone. I'll remove it. I'll put in a heart of flesh. And if you go look at Ezekiel 36, he says, and I will cause you to walk in my commandments. I will cause you to obey my word. Friends, when the Spirit of God comes in us, it changes us. Remember, life is made of choices. And until you repent and turn to him, you will not make the right choices. You will not follow him. But when you do repent and turn to him, You will. He will change you. He will live through you. Repenting and believing in Jesus is life-changing. Hence why the Bible only uses extremely profound language. It's a new birth. You literally die to who you were. You come alive a new person. I think sometimes we miss this. Let me explain it to you this way. Last night, I'm, I'm typing, just getting ready for this morning. Since I was out all week, I did sermon prep a lot later than normal. As I'm typing, I have this little box come up in the top right part of, of my MacBook. It says, updates are ready to be installed. To which I, like any sane human, puts, no, remind me tomorrow. Right? Knowing very well when tomorrow it pops up again, I'm going to say, remind me tomorrow. I got here this morning. Turn on the computer. Updates are ready to install. Would you like to install? No remind me tomorrow. Now, if you ever had a phone or if you ever had a computer, updates can be pretty neat. Think about what is the purpose of an update? It'll fix bugs, maybe something that's going on, not literal bugs, you know what I mean, like, like bugs and things that are going on, glitches inside of the system. Maybe it'll be one of those newer ones where it gives you some new colors, it gives you new schemes, it gives you some new features. Basically, it takes what you have and it makes it better. Friends, I fear that for some reason we have made salvation that. Jesus did not come to give you an upgrade to make you better. He came to say you need to break the computer and get a new one. He came to say everything from head to floor, 
all of you is drenched in sin. But I have paid for that sin, and I have come to make you new. You must repent and turn from living this direction, and when you do, I will break the old processor, and I'll give you a new one. Ray Ortland says it this way, Jesus is not a mere accessory in our lives. Rather, He is the Lord and Savior of our lives, and we must follow Him. Wisdom is beckoning. Will you listen? Will you listen? Unfortunately, the problem is is that most don't. To which Solomon goes to next. Verse 24. It's odd he doesn't even explain how they respond. He just says, wisdom says, because I've called and you refuse to listen, I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They'll seek me diligently, but will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Friends, hear me, there's two ways to look at this. One person might look and say, well, I know people who are living the ways of the world, and this hasn't happened to them. Things are going really well. Well, hear me, Proverbs aren't always promises, but in this regard, it's going to happen sooner or later. If it doesn't happen here, one day they'll stand before the Lord, and this will be the response. Hear me as well. Don't hear what this is not saying. It's not saying God laughs at people whenever they struggle and fall in their own way. Wisdom is saying, I've called out to you. You've chosen to live a foolish way. Well, wouldn't I say, why are you surprised whenever it leads you to where I've told you it's going to lead you? No, God takes sin seriously. God doesn't delight in punishing the wicked. He delights in justice. Hence the whole reason it delighted Him to put His Son in our place. That it might satisfy His wrath that you and I might come to know Him. That we might have a relationship with Him. Wisdom is saying, act now. If not, you'll see the inevitable result. Look at verse 32 and 33. Wisdom says, for the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. Notice she's talking specifically to the simple again. Verse 33, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. And one of the best words in this whole chapter is that word, whoever. Whoever listens to me. Whoever turns and seeks to follow me. Whoever turns and listens and follows me. He says they will have ease. That doesn't mean life will be carefree. It means it will be worry-free. He says you won't have to worry about disaster that will come. What's he saying? He's saying one day you'll stand before God and Jesus will say, he or she is with me. It's been paid for. Friend, Solomon is beckoning, saying wisdom is crying out. The question is, is will you listen? Now hear me. He's already laid it out pretty clearly and he'll lay it out again. This won't be easy. This literally means you're not going to live the way that the world lives. You're going to turn your back in that way of lifestyle. This will look strange. As Paul tells us, it seems foolish to the watching world to live for Christ. While it might not be easy, Jesus doesn't say it'll be easy. He says it'll be worth it. Friends, I'll conclude just by saying the grace of God is amazing. It's absolutely unbelievable that we, we know who we are in this story, right? The offenders who deserve the just wrath of God. Instead, He gives us grace. I'll end with this story. I read this this week by Max Lucado. He tells a story of one time whenever his daughter was away to college. He said, you know, one of the things I tried to instill with them while they were home is I got their own bank account. I taught them how to manage their own money, how to pay attention to it, how to know how to spend their money. He said, well, one day I get a notification on my phone that says overdrafted, and it's my daughter's account. 
He said, in that moment, I thought, okay, what can I do? I'm a little bit frustrated. I've tried to teach her. I've tried to tell her. He said, so I could call her up and say, why did you let this happen? Why did you overdraft? Why didn't you check? He goes, I don't know if that's going to matter. He said, I could call her and say, hey, you overdrafted, but the truth is, is I know why she overdrafted. She doesn't have any money. It didn't like she could go and take care of it. He said, so instead, I did what dads do. He said, I had the money to pay for it. Indeed, it was only $25.37. He said, I knew that I could replenish her account and I could pay the overdraft fee as well. Since she calls me dad, I did what dads do. I covered up her mistake. He says, I called her after that and I told her she was overdrawn. She continually said to say that she was sorry. One thing she didn't do, though, was to offer to pay me back. He said, but why is that the case? He said, because she doesn't have anything to pay with. Instead of saying, Dad, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for this. She doesn't even know that he's paid for it yet. She doesn't say, hey, I'll take care of it. Instead, he said, I hear her say, Dad, would you mind? And I said, honey, I already have. I already have. In other words, what am I saying? Before she even knew of the offense, he said, I've paid for it. Friends, hear me. Before you even knew that you were guilty of sin, you aren't born knowing that. You're born living for the way of the world. But before you were even born, Jesus said, I took your sin, I put it on my back, and I've paid for it. Are you listening to the cry of wisdom, to the cry of God? Do you realize that you are a sinner? There is nothing you can do to justify your sin. Just like the girl who has no money to pay the overdrawn account, there is nothing that we can do to take care of our sin. Do you realize that there's nothing we can do to pay God back? There's nothing we can do to remedy our own problem. We all deserve death, which is eternal separation from God. Hell is not the worst part of that. The worst part is you are separated from the one who's created you. The one who says joy is found here, satisfaction is found here, life is found here. The one who created you and molded you, who the Bible says I created you the exact way I created you because I want to show my glory through you. Do you realize there's nothing you can do to earn your way back, but do you realize there's nothing you have to do? When you come to the understanding of, man, I'm a sinner, Jesus says, turn, because I've already paid for it. The wrath you know you owe right now, I've taken care of it. Do you realize that all you must do, indeed all you can do, is repent and place your faith, place your trust in Christ? Friends, I would ask you this morning, have you? Have you turned from your sin? Have you repented and trusted in Christ for salvation? If not, the question is, is will you? You would bow your heads with me. With your heads bowed, I would ask you just to close your eyes. Not because there's anything special with that. I ask you to close your eyes because I want to ask you to think. And the first question is simply this I would ask you, are you the person who God is saying, how long? Will I cry out to you without you responding? Is it possible maybe you're in here this this morning and you've heard the sermons? You maybe even know what you're supposed to do, yet you still are in that camp of the person who whatever phase you're in, that's where you're flowing. That's what you're doing. That's where you're walking. Whoever you're around, that's who you are. You conform whatever stage you're in. Friends, I would ask you, as I know Christ is asking you, how long? Will you repent and turn to me? Friends, you can do that today. You can do that right now by simply saying, Jesus, I want to repent of my sin. I don't want to walk that road anymore. I believe and trust in you that you have paid the penalty of all of my sin. And God, I simply just want to say yes to you. I want to follow you. I want to run after you. Will you do that this morning? 
Maybe this morning as you say, Merrick, I know I have a relationship with Christ. Well, I would ask you and tell you that Proverbs 1.23 still applies just to you. You see, repentance isn't just a one-time event in our life. It is a new way of life. We continually say, God, show me the areas of my life that I need to be reproved. Show me, and I will repent. I will turn. I will continually turn. Some of us today feel really far away from God. Friends, I would tell you, you don't feel far from God because God moved. Maybe God is saying to you, not regarding salvation, but maybe saying, how long will I tell you that my word is life and yet you will dabble in it at best? How long will I tell you to put to death that sin? How long will I tell you to do this? Friends, maybe this morning you need to say, God, show me where I need to turn. Show me what in my life I need to turn. Maybe it's an area of obedience you're not obeying. Maybe it's an area of disobedience. I don't know. Maybe you need to go home today and write Proverbs 123 on a note card and put it in your car. Put it somewhere you see it. Memorize it. And continually say each and every day, Spirit, show me, reprove me that I might change and turn to you. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's you're distracted in some way. I don't know. But how do you need to cry out to God this morning? And friends, I'll end with this. In light of even Father's Day, Parents, if we are not walking the walk, we cannot transfer it on to our kids. If we are not seeking to live this path, we have nothing to pass on but words. But hear me, it is our responsibility, moms and dads in the room, it is your responsibility not just to bring your child to church, but to invest life in them. To take the wisdom of the word of God and give it to them while you imperfectly try to live it out yourself. Maybe this morning as a parent, you need to confess your failure to not even be trying. You need to make a plan of how you're going to seek to do that for your kids. Father, I want to thank you again for this morning. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the fact that I don't have to stand up here and guess what I need to say or think about what I need to say. Lord, I can come to your word. We can come to your word and we can say, what has God said? Father, I pray that your spirit would move in our midst, convict our hearts where we need it, Lord. Block us from any stubbornness this morning and mold us into who you call us to be. Father, may we leave this morning not saying that we turned our backs again whenever you're saying, how long? God, help us respond to you. We ask all this, Father, in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. I'd ask you at this time, I'll be down here, Brayden will be down here. Maybe you want to come talk to us. Maybe you want to sit and pray. Maybe you want to stand and pray. Maybe you want to come pray at the altar. I'll tell you during this time. Respond however you feel led to do so.